Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. We're like one week out from school. You excited? (laughs) It's a collective groan. (laughs) Why would you say that to me? Yeah, the seniors are like, yes, get get it going so it can get done. Oh, man. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, uh, let me invite you to find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week, we talked about the return of Christ. And so if you were here with us last week, we were in 1 Thessalonians 4, and we talked about uh, the fact that Jesus Christ will come again, uh, that the dead in Christ will rise, that we have hope, that we can grieve as those with hope, Um, Hopefully it was an encouraging message to you. It was encouraging for me to prepare. Uh, This week, we're going to expand on the idea of the day of the Lord. We're going to expand on that event as not just a thing to give Christians hope, but a thing that should cause those who don't know Christ to fear. Um, So the title of the message this morning is On That Day. If you've read your Bible and you've seen maybe the prophets or maybe you've read the book of Revelation or you've read some prophecies throughout the scriptures, you know that the Bible has a lot to say about the day of the Lord. That's a a phrase that you'll see over and over, the day of the Lord. The Bible speaks often, but it often is in terms of judgment. So if you go read the prophets in the Old Testament and you read about the day of the Lord, there are certain instances in which you'll see that the day of the Lord is a day of rejoicing, a day of glory, a day of happiness. But, but more often than not, the day of the Lord is a day of justice. It's a day of judgment. It's a day where God will bring his wrath to bear on those who deserve it. We'll pick up on that this morning. But we also want to be reminded this morning in our text that our life in Christ, so if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, your life is hidden with Jesus, the Bible tells us. And if you're in Christ, that means you are no longer in the dark, no longer under God's judgment and wrath, but instead you get to walk in the light of his presence, preparing for the day when he comes again. And even when we fall short, right? Because all of us will fall short. All of us will sin We can rest in the promise that God is coming and that he is coming for us. So my hope and prayer in our time together this morning is that you would see the the reality of the day of the Lord as as a day of great rejoicing and a day of great wrath, but also you as a follower of Jesus might come away from this message encouraged and able to rest in the finished work of Jesus. That's a That's a goal, hopefully, that we try to hit every week. Uh, but especially uh, when Paul is so clear on what he has for us this morning and what the Lord has for us this morning. So let me read with you 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll start in verse 1 and read just a couple of verses and we'll talk about it. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are grateful that we get to gather together this morning as this youth ministry, as a a group of this body of Christ here at Lakeview. And Lord, I pray that you might bless our time together 
that you would be with each one of these students to help them to see and behold the truth of the gospel that we might find here in the Bible. More than anything, I pray that we would all catch a vision of your goodness, of your kindness, of your love for us, of your righteousness. Lord, we want to see you. And so I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might open the eyes of our hearts to see you more clearly and to be transformed by the power of your word so that we might live in light of Jesus. Help me to teach with clarity. Help our students and leaders to listen attentively. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, we got three uh, kind of big ideas about the day of the Lord. And so the first uh, point is this, the day of the Lord will stun the world. The day of the Lord will stun the world. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about how the return of Jesus will be plain and unconfusing, right? So when Jesus descends, 1 Thessalonians 4, when he descends from heaven to come to earth, everyone will know what's going on, right? We heard, we talked about the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, that the trumpet of God will sound and the whole world will know in that moment what is going on. This is the king. This is the Lord who is coming to reign. But just because it's unconfusing, just because it's clear, does not mean it won't be shocking. Paul writes to the church telling them that they have no reason to try and speculate the times and seasons that he says in verse 1. That is, when the day of the Lord will come in fullness. We talked about this last week, that there's no way you and I might be able to predict exactly when Jesus will return. There may be signs and patterns that point us towards that day and remind us of the the fact that that day is coming, but Scripture has spoken. That day will come, Paul says, like a thief in the night. And thieves don't call ahead, do they? Right? They're not saying like, hey, uh, I'm going to rob your house tonight, and so if you just leave the door unlocked, that'd that'd be great. They don't do that, right? That's not a good thief. A thief in the night comes unexpectedly, secretly. So that actual event will be impossible to predict. And the world, those who are still in the darkness of their sin and their own brokenness, they won't be able to fathom the coming of Christ. Now, maybe you have friends or family members uh, that you might think of when I, when I talk about this kind of person. You might have shared the gospel with them, or you might have talked to them about spiritual things, and they might say something like, hey, that, that's, really, that's really good for you that you believe all those things, but I just, I just don't think that that's true. I just don't think that that's right. I, I don't believe that that is going to happen. And so there are so many people in the world who live as though the things of Scripture are totally false. They just live their life day by day, unconcerned about the future, unconcerned about the ultimate end of the world. I, th- I think in, in our context, there's still um, a kind of a religious knowledge. So if you talk to your friends at school, or if you go off to college here, maybe at Auburn, or maybe at a college in the South, you probably will have some kind of shared vocabulary, things like God, the Bible, Jesus, the cross. Like Those are things that people think about. But there are plenty of places in the world where it's not that they don't agree. It's not that they've done a lot of study and have come to a conviction where they they disagree with the gospel. They just don't care. They just don't care about what God's word has to say. And yet, like a thief in the night, 
the Lord will come. These people might say, as they look at the world and as they look to the future, "Ah, you know, there are certain threats, you know, war between Russia and Ukraine or China and Taiwan or some things going on with Bitcoin or whatever that thing is. And there may be some issues going on with whether or not Instagram is going to be like TikTok or not or whatever. Uh, But but in in the grand scheme of the world, there's peace. In the grand scheme of my context, there's security. I'm not worried about where I'm going to sleep tonight. I'm not worried about what I'm going to eat for lunch today. They will not feel any kind of threat about the danger that is pointed at their soul because of their sin. Paul says in Ephesians that for those who are uh, the sons of disobedience, the wrath of God remains on them. And they don't they don't know. They don't feel it. They don't understand. So when that day of the Lord comes, it will not be good for those apart from Christ. It will be, as Paul writes here that we just read, sudden destruction. There will be no escape. Now maybe that reminds you of certain instances in your life. It reminds me of some really popular Bible stories. Maybe the things that you learned when you were a kid or things that you learned in vacation Bible school. I think about the days of Noah, right? So if you were on choir tour, we just got to go to the, the ark Uh, And it was amazing. And you got to think, like for decade after decade, God had told Noah to build this ark so that he and his family might be delivered from a coming judgment. And you got to imagine that year after year after year after year, there were people watching Noah and his family going, what in the world are they doing? There were many who saw Noah's work and thought, this man is delusional. There's no coming judgment. There's no need for this ark. Everything's fine. And then the flood came. And everything that had life and breath in its nostrils died. Or think about those in Egypt, right? In the time of Moses, the Egyptians had experienced nine plagues, one after another after another. And then they heard the threat of a 10th plague that death would come to every household. But they did not think to follow the Israelites in painting their doors with the blood of the lamb. They thought, surely, surely this is too much. Surely this is not going to happen. Surely there's no real threat of death coming to every household. And that night, the sting of death came to every firstborn in the land. In a more severe way, students, this day of the Lord will stun the world. And they will be delivered to his judgment. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of us who have been born again to a new and living hope, that is not our fate. So let's keep reading verse 4. But you, Paul writes, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to, uh, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So the day of the Lord will stun the world. But number two, the day of the Lord should not surprise us. The day of the Lord should not surprise us at all because we know that it's coming. Paul reminds the church and reminds you and me, we are not in darkness. We were, we were blind, we were in darkness, but now we see. So the coming of the Lord should not surprise us one bit. Instead, 
you and I as Christians get to eagerly anticipate Christ's return. Why? Because we are children of the light. We're children of the day. So Paul makes it clear here that there are two kinds of people in the world, and only two. There are those who are in the darkness, and there are those who are in the light. There are those who are in the night, or there are those who are in the day. It's one or the other. And if you've repented of your sin, if you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, if you put your hope in him, then you have been moved from darkness to light. John tells us in 1 John that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So if we are adopted into the family of God, then we are now children of light, sons and daughters of light forever. So his return should not surprise us, should it? Look at verse 6 with me. He said, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul says, so if we know that we're children of the day, children of light, let's stay awake. Let's not sleep. Let's be sober. Let's not get drunk. Now, this obviously doesn't mean if you're a Christian, you are not allowed to sleep at night, right? That's not what this means. And we learned last week that sleep, that word sleep is often an image or a metaphor for death. So those who have fallen asleep before us, that's those who have died before us. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. So it's, it's, it's not saying, hey, you're not allowed to die, right? Stay awake. What does he mean? What does he mean to, to stay awake? It means that we must stay alert to the coming of Christ. That you and I as Christians must live day by day with the day of the Lord in mind. So sleep or drunk here are not literal. It's not literal states that Paul has in mind. Instead, he wants you and me to see that as Christians, it makes no sense to fall into any kind of moral laziness as we live in the light. It is is incompatible for someone who is the child of light, a child of the day, to walk in darkness. Those two things don't make sense. Those two things don't add up. Now, we know it's true Right, All of us walk through seasons of life where we find ourselves in darkness. We, we, because of our weakness or because of our brokenness, find ourselves in sin once again. But that's not who you are anymore. So Paul is saying, if you are a child of God, if you are a child of the day, be awake. Be sober. Don't fall into moral laziness. So we live in hope that the light of the world is coming again. And we refuse as followers of Jesus to fall back into sin and darkness. You and I as Christians make it our mission to live as light. And that's where Paul leads us up next. So let's finish this section starting in verse eight. He writes, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is my favorite part of this passage. 
So the day of the Lord is going to stun the world. The day of the Lord should not surprise us because we live in the light. So number three, Christians walk in the light towards that day. So, so knowing all that we've learned, remembering all that we know, how do we respond? Will we walk in the light towards that day? Since you and I belong to the day, let us walk in the light. We walk in holiness. We, re, we resist sin. We, we fight against moral laziness and lethargy and darkness in the world. And we put on, as, as Paul writes here, the armor of God, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. Now, here's what's amazing. We are really called to do this. Like, don't miss this. Like, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing that you do to earn your salvation. And yet, Paul is saying, hey, you Christian, do these things. As followers of Christ, we walk, we stand, we put on armor, we live in the light. Christianity is not passive. It's active. It requires our effort. It requires our whole life. But remember the order of the gospel. We don't act, we don't live, we don't walk in order to receive God's love. We don't do these things in order to receive hope. We don't do these things in order to receive grace. No, we act, we walk, we live because he's already given us all of these things. And so our life is now a response to what God has already done for us in Christ. Now, how might that encourage us? First, this armor of God, this breastplate of righteousness, this helmet of salvation, it's not merely armor that God gives us. So when we think about the armor of God, it's not as though God has this armor and he's like, okay, you get armor and you get armor and you get armor and everybody has got armor on. Great job done. No, find with me, flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. I want your eyes to be on this, to see with me how great news this is. Isaiah 59. So if you just open like to the middle of your Bible, you're probably going to be close. So in Isaiah 59, there is this prophecy, this, this declaration that judgment will come to the evil and to the oppressor. That those who seek to oppress the righteous, those who seek to harm them, they will stand against God's judgment. But look at Isaiah 59, start in verse 15. About halfway through 15. Listen to what this says. The Lord saw it. That is all of this oppression, all of this wickedness, all of this sin. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Students, the armor of God is not just armor that God gives you. It's his armor. He wore it for us. 
God puts on this armor to wage war against our enemies and defeat them once and for all. And Jesus, the one who perfectly obeys the will of God, the one who perfectly conquers sin and death and the grave and the devil, he gives us the armor that he himself wore. We know that Jesus put this armor on for us. So now we wear his armor as we follow him. Next, flip back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We notice in this passage our destiny. So not only are we wearing the armor that Jesus wore for us, defeated our enemies for us, we notice our destiny. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not destined for wrath. This means that if you are a Christian, then all of your suffering, all of your hardship, all you face in this life that harms you or wounds you or causes you grief, it is impossible for it to be God's judgment because you are not destined for wrath. The the hardship that you face in your life cannot be God's condemnation of you because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how is it that you and I can trust that that the hard things that happen in our life, the, the painful things that happen in our life, the hard circumstances that we have to walk through in this life, how is it not God's condemnation? How is it not God's wrath? How is it not God's judgment? Well, because Jesus was condemned and he bore in his body our sin so that he might take our wrath. He might take our judgment which means there's no more wrath for us. There's no more judgment for us. God's wrath was satisfied when Jesus was condemned for you. So our sufferings as believers get a new context. They get a new understanding because our sufferings as believers are none other than God's loving discipline that he uses to mold us into the image of Christ. The hardships that you and I face, because we are not destined for wrath, we're destined for salvation. So the hardships that we face are for our good. And you might think in this moment, how can that be? How can that be that hard things come my way, painful things come my way, and it's for my good? You may have heard me use this illustration before. I may have said it recently, but it bears repeating. Think about a surgeon, right? Like if if I told you, Um, hey, so planning to, when you go to sleep tonight, uh, show up at your house and take out a piece of your brain. Cool. You'd be like, um, pass, right? Like I'm going to take a rain check on the whole brain removal part. Right. Because you don't want people cutting stuff out of your body and hurting you and harming you for no reason. That doesn't make any sense. But what if I told you um, hey, the, the scans came back and there's a tumor. 
And that tumor is in your brain and, and we can remove it. And if we don't remove it, it will continue to grow and will continue to cause you more damage. And ultimately it will, it will threaten your very life. It's going to be painful. There's a recovery process involved. It's going to require us to kind of go in and, and cut some stuff out, but it's actually going to make you better. It's going to, it's going to actually heal you. It's going to hurt, but it's going to heal you. Well, that context changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah, sign me up. Like, uh, yeah, let's do that right now. And in the same way, God, like a surgeon, will wound you to heal you. He will, in, he will allow hardship to come your way so that you might come through that more like Jesus. What he wants for you is better, infinitely better than what you might want for yourself. And so if we know that we're not destined for wrath, as we walk in the light, we can trust that anything that comes our way comes from a good God who gives us good things. And Jesus died for us. Look at verse 10. He died for us so that, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Students, get this. No matter where you are, if you're nailing it as a believer, or if you're a wreck, whether you're awake or asleep, if you've been walking in the day or find yourself regularly lurking back into the darkness, Jesus died, Paul said, so that whether you are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Jesus died so that you might live with him. What an encouragement. That for, for all of us in this room, no matter where you are, no matter how you might evaluate your life with Christ today or this week or this month or this year, your standing before God has not changed. What an invitation to climb out of the shadows of your sin of your passivity, of your spiritual laziness and begin again to walk in the light because Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord fast approaches and for those of us in Christ, nothing, not even you, will keep that from being a day of glory and joy. So my hope as we think about living in the light, walking in the light towards that day is it doesn't matter where you are today. If you say, God, I, I know that you are my Lord. I know that you are my Savior. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. But when I think about the last semester of my life, the last year of my life, it's, it's not pretty. Oh, how I want you to believe that his delight when he looks at you is unchanged. Because Jesus is unchanging. When he looks at you, he doesn't see the how you're doing today. That's not the standard for how he values you. No, he looks at you and says, clothed in the righteousness of my son, in whom I have delight, in whom I am well pleased. And so it's an invitation for all of us. As we think about our own sin, as we think about our own life, as we look ahead to this next school year, and we think about what kind of a person do I want to be 
What kind of life do I want to live? What kind of uh, witness do I want to display to the world? If you've been walking with Jesus and have a a reputation of faithfulness, praise God. Would you fight and, and crawl and beg for God's mercy to continue walking in that faithfulness? So that you might continue to display the light of the gospel in your world. And if you look and say, man, my witness, my reputation, my life has been in shambles. Well, then what a testimony to God's grace. What a, what a witness to his power for you to say by his grace and by the power of his spirit, I'm going to walk in holiness. And yeah, I, I might need to apologize to some people. I might need to uh, define some boundaries with certain relationships that I have. I might need to change the way that I'm interacting with other people at school or at work or at my job or in my clubs or my band or on my team or whatever it is. But what an invitation for the world to look and wonder and say, it's not him, it's not her, but what's going on here? Because you've been walking in darkness and now you're living in the light. And all of us who are in Christ are children of the light. So let me pray. We'll spend a couple of minutes talking about these things. My prayer is that we would individually, we would collectively as a group, we would just commit one to another to say, we want to walk in the light together. Let me pray for us.